So happy Resurrection Day, everyone. Jesus is alive. Amen? All right. Forever. So open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. I get to preach the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God today. That means that it is from God, and it's completely true, and it will never lead you astray. You can trust the Word of God, and I think that's really good to know in the era of fake news and false evidence in which we live, right? It's good to know that you can trust the Word of God. Uh, we are going to be in an Old Testament passage that's really hard to find. Everyone has to bookmark it, uh, but it's about how we can rejoice in the Lord no matter what. Rejoicing in His sufficiency and salvation and strength. Rejoice in the Lord, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment. At grace, we stand to read God's word out of reverence and honor for God and his word. Um, let me just mention, if you're new to grace, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. We hope that um, as our guests, you will find a place of fellowship and community. But most of all, we hope that you know Jesus Christ and that you grow in him. And uh, yes, I realize that Easter is like the Super Bowl of, of Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving churches, and so this is a big day, right? This is kind of like the Game 7 of the NBA Finals. It's like the World Series. It's a big day. But let me remind you of something. It's a big day because the big deal already happened at the cross and the resurrection, and so today we are celebrating sin being paid for at the cross and death being defeated in the resurrection. And so uh, we've got to make that very, very clear that for Christians, every day is resurrection day. Every day is a day to steward under God um, for Jesus and the gospel. So stand with me. We're going to read. I'm just going to read three short verses today. The word of God Strong and powerful, from God, totally true. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. And Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would have your way in our hearts today for your glory and our good. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't meet very many unthankful people, okay? I think most people are thankful for what they have. I know there are people who are ungrateful. But we are thankful that God meets so many of our needs, are we not? But we tend at the same time to take it all for granted. But what if... Everything you had was taken away, was gone. And I don't mean just a temporary downturn, I mean a total devastation, all gone. 
nothing left, how would you respond? Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, not minor because it's not important, but because it's short, it's three short chapters, Habakkuk is facing grim prospects around about 610 BC, and as sure as the word of God, disaster was looming. But he maintained steady faith in God. He declared complete dependence on God. And what we're going to see today is how we can live with resurrection rejoicing in the face of overwhelming odds. How difficult days can lead to sincere rejoicing in Christ. Now, just like most of us are thankful, all of us want joy. I don't know anyone who says, you know, I'd like to have a really miserable life. I'd like to be as joyless and as sad as possible. We all want joy in life, right? But the problem with that is that life gets in the way of joy. And I hope what you'll see with me today in God's word is that joy in Christ can eclipse life. Now, Habakkuk says, and I read this, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He is saying he is going to rejoice and take joy. Those are two different Hebrew words meaning the exact same thing. It means to be glad, to rejoice. Uh, we don't use this word very often, but to be jubilant. And he says, I am joyful in the midst of bad circumstances. Now, that's like if you said, you know, kid, kids, I, I'm going to rejoice even though my little brother always annoys me. I'm going to rejoice. Praise the Lord. I'm going to rejoice even though my, my schoolwork is hard, even beyond my ability to do it. I'm going to rejoice, for those of you who are married, I'm going to rejoice even though my spouse always seems to nitpick. I'm going to rejoice even though I don't have many friends. I'm going to rejoice even though my bank account is below zero. It's like freezing. I'm going to rejoice even though my work environment is very unpleasant and I really don't want to go tomorrow. I'm going to rejoice even though I have cancer. And if you're a believer, the reason that you can say those things, the reason that you can rejoice even though those things are happening is because your joy is not in those things. Your joy is in the Lord. As the psalmist said, all my springs of joy are in you, Lord. You don't find joy in, in, in the things of life. Now, you, you find Temporary joy, you don't find abiding joy. You can make your joy list. Here's all the things that give me joy in life and they're all going to burn. But you can find joy in the Lord because he's always gracious, always kind, always loving, always merciful, always good, always gracious. You find your joy in other things. You find your joy in temporary things. You're gonna crash and burn. We've done this, right? Many of us have crashed and burned because we found our joy in other things. To rejoice means to you know, call to rem remembrance, to, to recall your joy in God. And only someone 
who is trusting in God can truly rejoice. So at the core of rejoicing in the Lord is that you're going to look past your circumstances to who God is. Who he is in and of himself. Who he's revealed himself to be in the word of God. And you're you're able to, to rejoice in him. And so what happens is the reality of who he is can eclipse the reality of your circumstances. Now wouldn't it have been easier if the Holy Spirit just had a back say, you know, part-time, I'm going to rejoice. The other time, I'm not. I'm going to complain. I'm going to wallow in my misery. I'm, going to, I'm just going to have at it, but half-time, I'll rejoice. I know there's no benefits for the half-time, but, but I'm still just going to rejoice some of the time. What if wouldn't it have been easier? Wouldn't it have been more you know, realistic if the Holy Spirit had Paul say in Philippians 4.4 4 and even in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice some of the time? How about that? Would we like that? Oh, we would love that, wouldn't we? Uh, I have license to not rejoice the rest of the time. But he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. No ifs, ands, or buts. I, I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll rejoice always. Circumstances change. Christ never does. You can rejoice in him all the time. He's open 24 hours. He doesn't close. He doesn't go on vacation. He doesn't take a break. And rejoicing is what God wants to bring about in the hearts of believers for his glory. They're good. So today is week five of five weeks in Habakkuk at Grace Church. Last three verses of a very short book. We've gone, every, we've gone through every verse in this book. But it's a great place to land on Easter. As I was you know, preparing a schedule of what I was going to be preaching on, I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to preach this on Easter. An obscure Old Testament book that packs a big gospel resurrection punch. Habakkuk is about living by faith in God who is merciful. And there's an amazing progression in this book from protest to praise. So it occurs at the beginning that Habakkuk is going to protest God, basically. He said, God, why are you letting this happen? You're you're not even paying attention, God. Your people are plunging over the cliff into rampant evil and injustice. They're plummeting, and and you're not doing anything about it, God. This is how it starts. I mean, he dives in the deep end right away. First five verses of chapter one. But then God responds, and he says, you know, I am paying attention, and I am going to do something. In fact, you won't even believe it when I tell you. I'm going to use... The Chaldeans, the wicked Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation to punish Judah. Now Habakkuk is questioning God's justice. He's like, whoa, whoa, time out, God. How can you use a people more evil than us to discipline us? We're better than them. You ever had those kind of thoughts? And then God answers and just floors him. He says, you know what? I just want you to know something. The Chaldeans aren't off the hook. Oh, they're going to answer for their sins too, just like you will. They'll be punished for their sins. 
All of chapter 2 is about that. It's a biblical truth we have to grasp, really, that everyone is going to answer for their own sin. We want to point the finger, oh, well, look what they're doing, and look how bad they are, and look what they did to me, and all this, and end of the day, you're answering for your own sin. Spend all the energy you want on someone else's, but you're going to answer for yours. And by the way, your sin is going to either be punished in you or in Christ on the cross. Now, Jesus died once for all for sin. So you place your faith in Jesus, your sins were on Christ at the cross. You say, I don't want Jesus, your sins are on you. I just want you to be aware. And then God reminds Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, by the way, I'm in my holy temple, so shut up. Sorry, kids. I know your parents tell you not to say shut up. This is biblical, though. (laughs) Let all the earth, here's what he says, let all the earth be silent before him. Hush. I've got this. That's what he's saying to Habakkuk. And then Habakkuk goes through the progression and, and marvels at God's plans. He's like, okay, I get it. He's amazing. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 3, I am going to wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon those who are going to invade us. I'll wait for God's justice. And he's pleading with God. He's saying, Lord, in in your wrath against sin, remember your mercy. Chapter 3, verse 2. By the way, all of chapter 3 of Habakkuk is a song. It's a song. It's a nakedly honest song of praise at the end of this Prayer journey, journal of a burdened man. And he's, pray, he's praying, now he's singing. And he's saying, God, remember your mercy toward lost wayward sinners so that we would be reminded to recount your awesome deeds and rely upon your mercy. And the doctrines of grace are rooted in God's plentiful, merciful love. His, his mercies are plural. They are new every morning. We... We need God's mercy, do we not? We need God's mercy in Christ. In Christ's substitutionary, propitiatory, atoning sacrifice, shedding his blood in our place, taking all of God's wrath against our sin and paying the ransom that God required, which is totally sufficient. Habakkuk has been through the ringer. You might have felt like you've been through the ringer recently. He's been through the ringer. And he will endure more. Yet, all throughout, you get glimpses of gospel glory which escalate to this crescendo of absolute faith in verses 17 through 19. He rejoices in the Lord. He he joyfully submits to the sovereign hand and plan of God. O. Palmer Robertson calls these three verses the most beautiful spirit of submission found anywhere in Scripture. This is like Job saying in Job 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is like Paul saying, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Habakkuk had got a glimpse of God's glory, Isaiah-like, Isaiah 6-like, and, and knows God is enough for him. And so he sings, and I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm a good singer, but I'm not going to sing it for you. I don't know the tune. Uh, It's, I will rejoice in the Lord. He's got this glad adoration sustained by the mercy, the sovereign mercy of God. 
So what I want you to see with me today is how this passage shows us how, how, we, can re, how we can rejoice in the spite of our circumstances. I want to call your attention to verse 17 and then on into verse 18, just the, the first part of verse 18. The first thing we see here, the, the outline is very simple. It's that he's first rejoicing in the Lord's sufficiency. God's sufficiency. Verse 17, fig aren't, the figs aren't blossoming. There's no fruit on the vine. The olive tree failed. The fields yield nothing. The flock is cut off. There's no herd in the stalls. Now, this isn't you and me saying, you know, um, a coyote got my chicken, and now I can't get eggs from my chicken, and oh, you know, my pomegranate tree's not doing well, and my, 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 uh, my lemon tree is, all oh, the, the aphids just got all over it, and bummer, but I'll just go buy some more. No, this is a picture of total devastation. Wiped out, leveled, everything gone, and he says in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though everything is leveled, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. Walter Chantry says, the land is stripped of all that brings the body's substance. Yet Habakkuk will have joy in God. There is great satisfaction for God's people to find in God himself in times of severe want. It is sad that Christians seldom fast. The idea of going without your food to pray. One of the lessons of fasting is when the body is denied pleasures, spiritual satisfactions in God alone may increase greatly. When the material world lures us to luxury, it is so easy to forget the Lord, neglect communion with Him, and fail to depend on Him alone. Well, you just described you and me. This is how we live. We turn faith into a quest for material things, for healing and happiness and prosperity. And we've got to remember what, what happened in John chapter 6. Jesus gives bread miraculously to thousands of people. And the crowds begin to swarm to Jesus for more bread. Maybe it was pumpernickel or something, I don't know. They wanted bread. They didn't want Jesus. And he rebuked them for not seeking him. He's the one that said, I am the bread of life, capital B. I'm all sufficient. I will satisfy to the depths of your soul. Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the world is very agitated right now. Up to this very minute. Just this week, Perry Chiramonte wrote an article where he said, Prospects of Christianity surviving in its birthplace, the Middle East, appear as grim this holy week as they have been at any time in the last 2,000 years. He goes on, he says, persecution of the world's largest religion has intensified throughout the 20th century and that that trajectory has only intensified in recent years, especially in Muslim-dominated countries. Jihadists appear to have repeatedly carried out one of their oft-stated goals of erasing any trace of Christianity in some regions. He says the actual prospects facing Christianity in three of its longest standing strongholds, Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, vary significantly. 
But a blind eye is often turned by the mainstream media and others when it comes to anti-Christian atrocities, which have become an all-too-common way of life for many in the Middle East. And Chiaramonte goes on, he says, Christianity's prospects of surviving in its birthplace are grim. And I just want to say, that's a well-meaning but misguided statement. The persecution is atrocious. But read your Bible, Perry. Christianity will survive. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will live even if you die. It goes beyond this life. It goes to eternity. That's the whole deal I'm preaching here. You can rejoice in Christ in spite of your circumstances because your circumstances that you see right now is not all there is. Go to the book of Acts. And, and they were preaching Jesus and they were rejoicing because they were considered worthy to, to suffer and even die for the name of Christ. Romans 8 tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not tribulation, not persecution, not famine, not sword. And Paul even says in all these things, in persecution and and famine and sword we are more than conquerors through him who loved us that we conquer beyond those things that our citizenship is in heaven philippians 3 20 that, that in all things i've learned to be content philippians 4 that that james says count it all joy my brothers when you encounter various trials this is how you deal with fear a lot of us are racked with fear over things in life and you look back and you remember God. And once Habakkuk did this, he started to feel better. He forgot his nerves and he thought about God and he was awestruck and he begins to rejoice. What may come, he says, I'm going to rejoice in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we may rejoice in tribulation and be triumphant in the midst of the worst circumstances. That's the challenge of the Christian position. Here Christians are to differ from the world. We are to do more than put up with it or be steady. We are to know a holy joy and manifest a spirit of rejoicing. We are to be more than conquerors instead of merely exercising self-control with the aid of an iron will. We are to rejoice in the Lord and to joy in the God of our salvation. And such a time is a test of our Christian profession. Of this passage, James Roscup said, Habakkuk's concept of himself was nothing but weakness. That's all he saw when he looked at himself. He said, I've got nothing but weakness going on. He heard God's word about the coming judgment, and he's trembling. He has a respect for the word of God. He took it seriously, and he was reduced to an, a sense of utter inadequacy as to his own ability. And, and, and he was rocked by fear. His lips are quivering. There's rottenness in his bones. There's nothing in himself that's adequate. So all he sees in himself is nothing but weakness. And then Roscup says, but his concept of the situation was nothing but bleakness. He sees nothing but bleakness. The invader occupies the land, strips plant life, animals vanish, Judeans are driven into the hills, and many die for lack of food and drink. People are living off the produce of the area, so the situation is dark with disaster. But then he says this, but his concept of the Lord is nothing but greatness. So of himself, weakness. Of the situation, bleakness. But of the Lord, greatness. 
So he relies upon him. He, he, it leads to a spirit of rejoicing and a spirit of rest. I love that. I love that. That in him, nothing but weakness. In the situation, nothing but bleakness. Yet in the Lord, nothing but greatness. That's the mindset, really. If you think about it, the heart set God wants you to have. In 1903, Booth Tucker was preaching uh, evangelistic meetings in Chicago. And one night he is preaching on the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And a man walks up to him after he preaches and he says, well, you can talk like that, how Christ is so dear to you and helps you, but if your wife was dead, as my wife is, and you had your babies crying for their mother who would never come back, you could not say what you're saying. A few days later, Tucker's wife was killed in a tragic train accident. They bring her body back to Chicago for the funeral in the same church that he was preaching the sufficiency of Christ. And after the service, he looks down at her body, the body of his wife, and he says, the other day, I was in this same place, and a man said that I could not say that Christ was sufficient if my wife were dead, and my children were crying for their mother. And he says, if, this man, if that man is here, I tell him Christ is sufficient. My heart is all crushed, my heart is bleeding, my heart is all broken, but there is a song in my heart, and Christ put it there. And if that man is here, I tell him that though my wife is gone and my children are motherless, Christ speaks comfort to me today. Well, that man was there. And he, and he comes down the aisle and he falls down beside the casket and he says, if Christ can help like that, I surrender my life to him. See, we, we, we're insufficient. Christ is sufficient. Rejoice in his sufficiency. Lead us to a second point here in this passage. Habakkuk could do this and we should do this. Rejoice in the Lord's sufficiency, but also, verse 18 the second part of verse 18, in his salvation. That's what he says. He goes, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let me ask you a question. On what basis do you think that Habakkuk was claiming that God was his salvation? That he would spend eternity with his Lord, that he'd be forgiven of his sins. How could he say this in 610 B.C.? What was the basis of that proclamation? Well, it was the same basis as Abraham, who believed God. See this recorded in Genesis. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This takes us to that, that gospel gem, that golden gospel gem in Habakkuk 2.4. Go there. Habakkuk 2, chapter 2, verse 4. Where, you, where God deposited this gospel truth in the vault of Habakkuk. And it says this, the righteous shall live by his faith. That's justification by faith alone. Now you go over to Galatians chapter 3 with me. Go over there to, in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. By the way, I love the, the sound of Bible pages rustling or swipes on the electronic you can imperceptibly hear, hear. You've got fingerprints to prove you did it. Um, Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, tells us, those of faith 
are of Abraham the believer. And the scripture, foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of, of the earth be blessed. So those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now go down to verse 11. No one is justified before God by the law. For, and, the, and, 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 and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4. For the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. You see, Habakkuk was looking forward to the Messiah. Now we look back in wonder at the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Habakkuk believed in a suffering Messiah to come. He would have been clinging to the message of Isaiah 25 verse 8 that he will swallow up death forever, that the Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. Won't that be an amazing day? And the reproach of his people he will take away. He would cling to Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. There's the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's the ascension at the right hand of the Father. We believe that Jesus was crucified, risen. He is reigning now and he's returning. And when he was at the cross, he said, it is finished. We believe that with all our hearts. It's not some you know, pastor mumbo jumbo that a guy like me gets up here and makes up. This is what God says in his word. Jesus told us. He told his disciples even before the cross, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, what his part would be in his death and resurrection. If you want to look at it, go for it. John 10, verse 17. He says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus died and rose again. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records the death and resurrection of Christ. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. Let's see what happened. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. First day of the week, early dawn. Some of you probably got up early and did a uh, Easter sunrise service maybe today. But on the first day of the week, early dawn, they went to the tomb, took spices they prepared, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. You see that? They, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and, and when they went in, they didn't, feel the, they didn't see the body of Jesus. They were very perplexed, and two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, and the men said to them, Why'd you come to a cemetery to find a living one? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And he says, remember. God is so good about telling us to remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They've remembered his words. So they returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Judah, Judas is gone at this point, and they tell it to the, the eleven and anyone else who's around. And it was Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, and mother, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And when they heard it, they thought they were lying to them. 
They thought it was an idle tale. They did not believe it. They didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Peter gets up. Gotta love Peter. I love Peter. Runs to the tomb. Stoops down, looks in, sees the linen clothes by themselves, no body in there, and he goes home marveling at what had happened. Now, Jesus appears to his disciples, and now flip over to John chapter 20. Jesus appears to his disciples, and they're all like going, wow, you, you are alive, except for Thomas. Don't know where he was when all this was going on. He must have had a big appointment or something, or maybe he was just really dejected. I don't know, but, but Thomas, one of the 12... John 20, verse 24, was not with them when Jesus appeared to them. And the other disciples say, hey, we've seen the Lord. And he says, Mm-mm, sorry, if I don't see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Total unbeliever. If you're a believer today, you remember maybe what you were like when you were an unbeliever. I remember what I was like. I was a jerk about Jesus. I was, I was a jerk towards Christians. I was a jerk about Jesus. Uh, but if you're not a believer right now, you might be saying this. I will never believe this unless I see it with my own eyes. Okay, eight days later, his disciples are inside together. Thomas is with them. The doors are locked, and Jesus just appears through the wall. And he says, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, hey, buddy, come here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Uh, put out your hand. Put it in my side. Don't disbelieve. Believe. If you're an unbeliever today, I'd say, don't disbelieve, believe. And Thomas answers, my Lord and my God. He's basically saying, I believe now. I love what Jesus says next. Look at it. Have you believed because you saw me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I've read this verse so many times, and I, so many times I remember thinking, yeah, like me. But you notice he says, Blessed are those who have seen, excuse me, have not seen, and have believed. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about people like Abraham and Habakkuk. People who did not see but believed. And then in verse 31, go down to verse 31. This is about us. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And the wonder just keeps coming. Tidal wave of proclaiming Jesus in the gospel. Acts 17, verse 18, what was Paul doing? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's what we're doing here today preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this passage, by the way, he says, look at the facts of the mighty salvation that God has worked out and look at Christ, what he has done in Christ. Rejoice especially in the fact of the resurrection. If ever a situation seemed absolutely hopeless, it was when the Son of God was crucified on a tree and buried in the grave. The disciples are dejected, the end that seems to have come, but God acted in the miracle of the resurrection, showed he was still God, and with him nothing was impossible. He finishes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an idea, but a literal historical fact, and if not, there is no gospel. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's all go home right now. We should. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we should not be here. 1 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. You're wasting your time. 
Go eat some pancakes, tomorrow we die, kind of a thing. But 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says Christ has been raised from the dead. As by a man came death, Adam, by a man, Jesus, came also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all who believe shall be made alive. J.I. Packer, uh, in his classic book, Knowing God, said this. If you want to know God, you will find the God who is there for us to know is the God of the Bible. The God revealed in Jesus. The three and one of historic Christian teaching. Knowing him starts with knowing about him. His revealed character and ways, his goodness and severity, his wrath and his grace. We must reevaluate ourselves as fallen creatures, not strong and self-sufficient as we once thought. Weak, foolish, indeed bad, headed for hell unless God intervenes. Yeah, kid, kids, I said hell. I'll say it again probably in this sermon. Um, it's biblical. It's a real place. Packer goes on, knowing God involves a personal relationship where you give yourself to God on the basis of his promise to give himself to you. Asking for his mercy. Resting in his promise to forgive sinners for Jesus' sake. Becoming a disciple of Jesus, the living Savior, involves faith, which is expressed in prayer and obedience. You do what he says. Let me ask you today, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? A Christian is someone who is trusting in Jesus for salvation and everything. You believe that Jesus died in your place at the cross and paid the penalty you deserved and you are then saved. You believe in God's undeserved grace and mercy. You believe you are forgiven, accepted, and totally loved very deeply by God. And so as a result, you worship God with all your heart in every aspect of life, and you listen to him via his word. And he speaks to you in his word, and you have the privilege to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And he doesn't get annoyed with your constant requests, that you're always talking. He's okay with that. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. The reason why? We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. I will never cease to be amazed at the sovereign grace of Almighty God who showered his magnificent mercy upon my sinful heart and he extended maximum mercy to me. I was lost, I was depraved, I was a hell-bent rebel. And he chose me before the world began. And he purposed to redeem me. And he drew me to himself. And he granted me salvation on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It was an act of God that brings me to this conviction that I can share with you today. Archibald Alexander, uh, first professor of Princeton Seminary, 1812, had a whole life of ministry. On his deathbed, here's what he said. All my theology is reduced to this narrow compass. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In the last moments of his life, John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was barely able to speak, and he said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Habakkuk could, and, and we must rejoice in the Lord's sufficiency and salvation. And one, one more point before we close. 
I want you to look at verse 19 with me, last verse. You also need to rejoice in the Lord's strength, his power. He says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. Now, I'm guessing you haven't been very close to deer's feet unless you shot one or ate one. Because they're quick. They're fast. They will outrun you. Deer meat is good, by the way. Delicious. But Psalm 18, verse 33, he says, He made my feet like the feet of a deer, set me secure on the heights. He's got security and hope based not on temporary circumstances or temporary blessings, but God himself. The just here, the righteous, is living by faith. See that? He's fully aware of an imminent invasion, and he struggles back to faith. It's like you when, when everything you're counting on gets stripped away. Habakkuk is joyful in God, his strength. Just like a deer or a mountain goat, you know, traveling safely on rocky, dangerous heights. God leads, guides, protects, provides. Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. But I want you to look at that one phrase in verse 19 where he says, he makes me tread on my high places. What's that about? Treading on high places? Well, because deer are sure-footed, but there's more to it. There's actually a note of resurrection here. To tread on high places was the privilege in those days of victors after war. Warriors would run along the, the highest ridges overlooking the valleys where their battles had been won where their foes had been conquered, and later they would ride their chariots along the heights like a victory lap in a NASCAR race. And it was demonstrating their dominance over those they defeated. This is, this is Paul, through the Holy Spirit, telling us, in all these things we're overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. This is Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, thanks be to God who always gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to anchor your soul in those truths. You live by the bare word of God. And you worship him in, in faith and obedience. Or you're going to live by lies. You're going you're to bank on God's truth or bet on a lie. And I want you to see the, the last phrase. Uh, it, it seems like a throwaway phrase, but it's important. To the choir master with stringed instruments. When you're in the depths of despair and you might not feel like singing, singing helps. It lifts your spirits. You rejoice. You recall your joy. You, you rest in it. And, you know, Habakkuk is, is, is saying, like, I'm, I'm like a mountain goat here. You know, even if there's nothing, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to get through it because he's my strength. Even if it looks like I'm going to fall. Happy is the person who can say this and mean it. We are commanded. We are not mood driven, by the way, towards Rejoicing. We're not forced to rejoicing. You don't make yourself rejoice. True joy comes from Jesus Christ. You remember Jesus, you relish the joy that he gives, and you rejoice beyond your circumstances, and you worship him for who he is, not what he gives. Not just what he gives. Your, your, your one reason to rejoice is because of Jesus risen, reigning, and returning. Uh, First Kings, I was just reading this this morning. I was catching up on my... Bible reading. It was yesterday's Bible reading through the year, and, I, and I'm now, I'm on track now. But it says in 1 Kings 8 that God with his hand fulfilled what he said with his mouth. I love that. That's what Jesus did and what he keeps doing. He fulfills with his hand what he said with his mouth. He said through the prophets that Jesus 
would suffer and die and rise again. Jesus himself said this, and God fulfilled with his hand what he said with his mouth. Jesus conquered death, so there's nothing left to defeat. Can you grasp that? And let me ask you this as we close. To whom do you cling? What tree are you clinging to? Tree of cars and houses and jobs and people and food and maybe even your stress or maybe even evil or maybe just fun? Or are you clinging to the cross, the tree on which Jesus died? Jesus said, John 16, 22, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. So you can praise God when the wheels fall off. When all hell breaks loose, there I said it again. When worse comes to worse, remember Jesus that you are his and he is yours and nothing can change that. Because we live in overwhelming times, don't we? You might be very overwhelmed today by your overcrowded life or your burdens and responsibilities or too long to-do list or multitudes of problems and even all those ungracious and unmerciful people. Let me just say, I've said it before, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. I'm here to tell you that Jesus defeated the devil and overwhelmed the grave so you could be overwhelmed by God's grace. Jesus is alive right here, right now. Martin Luther, once in a, in a time of fear, was literally tracing with his finger the Latin words, vivit, vivit. He lives. He lives. The hope of Easter is that Jesus buried death so we could be overwhelmed by his grace. I want you today to grasp how awesome God is in doing that. Be awestruck at the goodness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Be humbled that he takes thought of you. And really put your life in perspective. You aren't as necessary and important as you think you are. You are more sinful and flawed than you know, but you are more loved and valued than you realize. The heart of faith in Christ is where you are brought to the point where Habakkuk's profession of faith becomes yours. Even if there is nothing, I will rejoice in the Lord. And Lord, we pray Rejoicing in hope of your glory. Because the reason we rejoice is because of who Jesus is. Jesus who is able to present us before your presence with great joy. So no matter what, Lord, please give us grace to rejoice in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.